Amen. You may be seated, and as you do, would you take your copy of God's Word and turn to Genesis chapter 2. As you do so, I want to welcome you here. I am glad that you uh, have come to worship with us this morning, particularly if this is your first time to be here or if this is your first time to join us uh, live online through one of our streaming platforms, whether you are in the building uh, or with us in spirit online, uh, welcome And uh, we are grateful that you have come to worship God and study his word uh, with Nansman River. If you are here with us and this is your first time to be here, I invite you to stop by the tent that you passed by on the way in. Uh, Our Connect team will be there as you are leaving. And we would love to be able to get some information from you and provide some information to you about our church. But most importantly, we just want you to know that we are glad and grateful that you have joined us for worship this morning. Today in our sermon, we will pick up where we left off uh, in Genesis chapter 2 and uh, consider the rest of this chapter. So I'll invite you now to stand with me uh, as we read our text this morning. I realize this is a little bit longer than uh, the text we will often consider in sermons, but I wanted to to take uh, just about all of Genesis 2, and you'll see why in the sermon. Uh, and there's not just a good spot for me just to read a piece of it. So I'm going to read all of it. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to listen to the whole story and ask this question as you heard it read. Uh, why is this here? Why this description of this place and this people in the beginning? Starting in verse 4 of Genesis 2. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land. And there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flows around the whole land of Havilah where there is gold, and the, and the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flows around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria, and the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground of 
Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heaven and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens, to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and while he slept took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man had made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful to you for an opportunity to gather as the church to be your congregation in this place together. Standing in a fallen world, recognizing sin and pain and suffering and death all around us. Looking back on perfection on paradise, on the garden of God. Help us, God, as we approach this text this morning. Would your Holy Spirit open our eyes? Let us see your truth, we pray. And God, we long for the day where you restore paradise. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. I recognize that there is a lot here. And uh, the, as we were discussing uh, the upcoming sermons in our latest elders meeting, uh, one of them asked, are you sure you're going to be able to preach all of those verses in one setting? I said, yes, I will, I promise. Uh, we will not be here an extended period of time. But I want to consider all of these verses together because I think it is most appropriate to do so. There are certain doctrinal truths that are introduced in uh, Genesis chapter 2 that could be preached separate. And at a time I considered doing so. And it's not wrong to do so. The New Testament authors, particularly as it relates to the final section that talks about marriage, do just that. They pull that specific phrasing about God's intention for marriage on multiple occasions in the New Testament and apply it to the current state of marriage. And they're not wrong to do so. But for our intention as we walk verse by verse through all 50 chapters of the book of Genesis, I believe it is going to be helpful for us to see what God intended in his garden. To see that which he called very good. A picture of perfect paradise in the Lord's garden. So we will consider all of these doctrinal truths together this morning as it paints one beautiful picture for us. And that is at the beginning of creation, God set apart on this earth a specific place where he placed the first man and woman who lived in perfect relationship with that place 
with that with one another and most importantly with God. So often when evangelical Christians talk about ancient past as it relates to the redemptive story that God is telling in scripture, we work our way backwards to Genesis chapter three. And for some reason we stop there. And if you don't know the story of Genesis 3, we will consider it next week. It's the fall. It is disobedience. It's where Adam and Eve choose to not do what God has told them to do, but to take ownership of their own moral choices. And evangelicals will often trace God's redemptive story back to that point without actually talking about what God does in Genesis 2. But without recognizing what God does in Genesis 2, we don't feel the full weight of what happens in Genesis 3. So here's what I want you to understand this morning. Before we get to the next couple of weeks where we'll consider that original sin and that judgment that God places upon them, we must note how perfect things were. That that which which God called very good was perfect. In every aspect. So let's look at those together this morning. First, the Lord God planted a garden for Adam in Eden. The land, Genesis 2 is going to tell us, needed the attention of both the Lord and of Adam. Look at verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the days that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens This is the first of nearly a dozen occasions where we see this structure introducing a section within Genesis. It will mark the main sections of Genesis. So we will see this. I believe it's 11 times in the 50 chapters where this same structure will be introduced. The generations of. Now, it is typically going to be a person. In this case, it's the generations of the heavens and the earth. So it is from the beginning This is beginning to tell us in narrative form how God created. Now you say, wait, we have Genesis 1, which tells us how God created. Yes, Genesis 1 and 2 are not contradictory accounts. Genesis 2 is a more detailed account of what God is doing in a specific location on the earth that he has formed. The word for God, you will notice here in verse 4, has changed. If you were paying attention in Genesis 1, you would notice that God was always just called God. The Hebrew word was Elohim. It is the general word for God. Just like in our language, we have a general word for God and we, up, we use a, a uppercase when we're talking about the one true God. We use a lowercase when we're talking about false gods. Elohim was a similar word. A a general word for God. When it was used describing the one true God, it was most often used to describe the God who creates, like in Genesis 1. The sovereign ruler and Lord who made the heavens and the earth. But here in Genesis 4, a compound word for God is introduced that is used, or sorry, in Genesis 2, a compound word is used for God that is used throughout Genesis 2 and 3. It is taking two names for God, One being Elohim, the other being the personal name for God that God gives to his people during the Exodus to say, I am with you. Now, 
the Hebrews would not say this name. And so they would say, they would replace, when they would come upon this name in the text, they would replace it with the most common name for God in the Old Testament, which was Adonai. So our translation of the Bible translates Lord, Adonai, God, Elohim. But it is the personal name for God Meaning this, the combination and the use of this in this story, by the way, only in this story, only in Genesis 2 and 3, and there's only one space, we'll see this next week, where that word is not used, it just reverts back to Elohim, Um, but it's only here in Genesis 2 and 3, and nowhere else in the entire book is this combination used. It's actually not until uh, Exodus 14 that we see this combination used again in the Old Testament. So why here? Why change from Genesis 1, just saying God, to saying this much more personal expression of who God is and at work in Genesis 2? It is because the God who, is, who sovereignly by his power created all things in Genesis 1 is the same God who loves and cares and works within his creation in Genesis 2. By providing these, this compound name for us, we see that this, we serve both a God who by his power creates and in his love interacts with his creation. Verses 5 and 6 tell us that when no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. And you say, wait, I thought in Genesis 1, God created all of the plants, right? And that preceded day six, which is when God created uh, man and woman. So uh, isn't this out of order? Is the Bible telling us that God did something that is, it didn't? No. When we consider what's happening and the picture that we are being given here is not of the entire world, but is this one space that the land that is being referred to here is just this one place where God is working, Imagine, if you will, Genesis 1 being an account where we are viewing God work in the world and in the universe. And Genesis 2 is a much smaller picture that we have, we have focused in now into this one place. And here's what we to, we're told. There's no, there, yet in the land, there was no small plant of the field that had yet sprung up. So this microcosm of creation that we're seeing in Genesis 2 is telling us that this specific place is not yet ready for habitation, similar to the formless and void that we saw in Genesis 1. The plant of the field that is referenced here in verse 5 is the specific word for plant. Just like we have different words for plants, right? So did they in Hebrew. And the word in Hebrew that was used for plants here, the plants of the field, are cultivated plants. So we're not being told that there are no plants anywhere in the world or maybe even that there are no plants here in this part of, uh, this part of the world, this small little place that God's working, but there was no cultivated plant. And plants used for cultivation are plants used to feed, to sustain society. And it tells us that um, most of our English translations of the Bible in verse 6 say a mist was going up from the land and watering the whole face of the ground. And much has been made of this term mist because in the original language, the, the word is really difficult and we don't necessarily know the full history of it. I think the best way to view this is not as a mist as in like I walk out early in the morning and there's a fog. 
And I know that's what we generally think of when we think of mist. But mist does not rise up out of the ground. What does rise up out of the ground is water. Now, we see this in our area uh, of, in Hampton Roads every day, right? You go out and you watch Bennett's Creek or the Nansman River that are right here on both sides of our church. And what you'll notice twice a day is the water what? Rises and the water falls. So what's most likely being described here is a natural occurrence that God has set into place where rivers rise and rivers fall. And what we're being told in verses 5 and 6 is there was still work to be done. That Eden needed the attention of God. That God needed to intervene and to make this place something special. And it needed a caretaker. There was no, verse 5 tells us, no man to work the ground. There was no man to direct the water, to cultivate the plants, to make this a habitable place for society to begin. And so more work needed to be done, and God does that work. The Lord creates man, breathes life into him, and places him here in the Garden of Eden. Look at verses 7 and 8. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. Now again, this is not a contradiction of Genesis 1. We don't see God doing one thing on day 6 in Genesis 1 and something different in Genesis 2. This is a retelling of God creating man and woman on that work day of God, just in more detail, telling us that man is formed of the dust of the ground and that he is, has the breath of God blown into him. Now, in Hebrew, there are two words used in the Old Testament for the term that we translate breath. One is far more common than the other. The common version is used over 400 times in the Old Testament. And all living creatures are said to have this kind of breath. Animals have this kind of breath. God, man, even false gods are are attributed to have this kind of breath in a metaphorical sense. But then there's the rare usage of the term. Only 25 times is the rare use of the the word breath in the Old Testament. And that is the term that is used here in Genesis 2. And it is only ever ascribed in the entire Old Testament to the Lord, the personal name of God, and to man in whom he breathed life. The breath that was breathed into man was something unique. It was not the same breath of life that was given to animals. It is something different other than we would not be wrong to trace our understanding of the soul to this point. Now, this doesn't tell us everything that we need to know about the soul. It doesn't tell us everything we need to know about that part of man that exists Um, connected to yet separate from our physical forms. But this is the first seed of that understanding that God breathes something into mankind that is different than everything else in his creation. And verse eight tells us that God formed that man and breathed that breath into him and planted that garden in Eden and place that man there. Here the garden is named 
Eden in the east. It is a garden that God planted. Now, when Hebrew scholars, thousands of years after this, about 400 years before Jesus, would go to translate the Old Testament into Greek, they used two very interesting words in translating garden and Eden. They used the word, uh, the Greek word paradise for garden. And they used the Greek word delight. So you have the paradise of delight. That this is how the Hebrews viewed Genesis 2. That this was paradise being a perfect place and a perfect place where both God and man found delight. It was a place that God could delight in his creation and a place where man, the crowning work of that creation, could delight in his God. That is the Garden of Eden, perfect, intended by God as a place where God could perfectly interact with his creation and his creation could perfectly relate back to him with no obstacle in between. A paradise of delight for God and for man. Then, the author of Genesis gives us the location and the landscape of Eden, which was intentional. It had purpose. Skip over verse 9 for a minute and let's look at the location first. He says, a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon, and it is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold, and the gold in that land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed uh, around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, uh, which flowed east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Here's what the author of Genesis wants us to understand, that, that Eden was centrally located in a very rich land. Now, again, we need to understand this as best as we can through the eyes of ancient Israel. As uh, I told you five weeks ago when we began this series that we historically the church has ascribed the authorship of this book to Moses during the time of the Exodus. And so Moses is, is passing on the truth of God to the people of God as they're about to go into the promised land. So how did they hear this? What did they think when they heard some of these descriptions well, for instance, these things that are, that are mentioned as, as being present within the land, gold, which we understand gold, onyx, we have a little bit of an understanding about that, and delium, probably nobody in here really deals with that or really even knows what it is. But all three of those are mentioned again during the time of the Exodus. For instance, delium was a specific color. It was at least prevalent enough during the life of ancient Israel that they would have known its color because manna that falls from heaven to provide food for the people in the wilderness uh, as, they go to, uh, as they go to the promised land out of Egypt was said to be the same color as that stone. Both onyx and gold were used in the building of the tabernacle during the Exodus. So here's what the ancient Israelites would have heard. This was a place that was rich. It was a good land that the land itself provided for the people that would inhabit it. 
There, were also, there was one river flowing through Eden that would then break into four rivers. Now, two of these rivers are known to us, and two of them are not. The second two rivers, uh, the Tigris and the Euphrates, are rivers that you've likely heard of in school. These are rivers that flow through the fertile crescent of Mesopotamia. The other two, as well as the lands that are described there in, uh, in, those, uh, in the previous verses, are lost to history. So then the exact location that is being described here is lost to us, but it is not important. And by the way, there have been people that have tried to find it. As I was doing my research for the sermon, I read some of these people that have tried to ascribe specific locations everywhere from pretty much any location you could possibly imagine in the Middle East to islands in the South Pacific, all the way to one guy saying it's at the North Pole. Okay? So here's what you need to understand. We're not finding it. Okay? Intentionally. And, and it doesn't matter. Don't, don't get lost in the idea of, well, we don't know where two of these rivers are and we don't exactly know where this land is and so maybe it didn't exist. It's not important. What's important is that this was a rich land, that the location had purpose, not that we would go and find it because that's not our goal, but that we would recognize that what God had created there was good. It was inhabitable, that he chose a good place for his Garden. Now go back to verse 9. And out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Here's what Genesis 2 tells us about the landscape of the Garden of Eden. This paradise of delight. Everything good grew there. Everything that man would need to make a home was there. Not only that which he would need to eat, but it tells us that all of the beautiful trees, all the ones that were pleasant to sight, grew there. So it was not just a place that would sustain man. Again, it was a place where man could find delight in that which God had created. It was a beautiful place with everything that man needed. And there were two specific trees that are named that are in the midst of the garden. Just because it says that it was in the middle doesn't mean it has to be in the dead center, okay? That's not, that's not what the text is saying. But in the garden, in the middle of the garden, contained within the garden, there were two specific trees. One, the tree of life. The other, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, these trees become more important in Genesis 3. In the two sermons that we will have uh, from the fall and, and the judgment, we will highlight both the tree of knowledge of good and evil next week and the tree of life the week after that. So I'm not going to deal with those this week. I would encourage you, come back. Be here in the next two weeks, and we will talk more about these trees. What is important this week is that they existed. We're going to tell you more about what they were in the next two weeks, but just know this, for the sake of time, in our minds, what we need to gather here is that those trees existed in the midst of the garden that God had planted and placed man within. Next, the Lord God created perfect relationships in the Garden of Eden. First, Adam had perfect relationship with his work and with creation. Verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Adam's work was good. Adam's relationship with creation was also good. 
Now, I dealt with this when we talked about the creation of man on day six a couple of weeks ago, so I don't want to spend a whole lot of time here. I would reference you back to that sermon if you missed it, but let me just highlight something that I said then that I think is also important here, is that work is not a bad thing, that we often think of work as being a result of the fall. No, the toil of our work is a result of the fall, but work is not. Adam was placed in a perfect garden of God and was expected to do work while he was there. And he was expected, you'll see here, to keep it. So he was supposed to work it and he was supposed to keep it, which speaks to his relationship with that creation. As we saw in Genesis 1, God gave man dominion over creation, but that dominion does not mean dominance. That that dominion does not mean ruin. It means protection. It means to to keep, to guard, to, to guide. And that is still our responsibility today. Many of these things that, these responsibilities that God gives to Adam in the garden, while changed because of the fall, have not been displaced. The same is true. We still work and should see work as a good thing in creation. And we should still keep creation. We should still guide and guard creation. So what we see here in this paradise of delight is that Adam delighted in his work and in the creation that God had made. He observed its beauty and managed it well. And was in perfect relationship with it. He didn't go home at the end of the day and complain about having to manage the garden. He was glad to do so. He found delight in it. Next, Adam had perfect relationship with his creator through obedience to the Lord's command. Look at verses 16 and 17. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now again, for our purposes in this sermon today, the the point is just for us to know that these trees existed and now to know that God gave specific commands as it relates to this tree, that God has said, Adam, You can eat of everything in this garden, meaning the mundane trees that grew there, whatever fruits they produced, Adam could eat. And of the two specific trees that God had placed in the garden, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, Adam was able to eat of one of those trees. He was able to partake of the tree of life. And we'll talk about the tree of life again in two weeks and we'll see the tree of life in Revelation 20 and that a day is coming where we will be able to partake of the tree of life again. But there was one that was excluded from Adam's reach. It was the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Now next Sunday, Pastor Mike will be preaching. He's going to give a much more, for, uh, uh, much more complete treatment of what is the tree of knowledge of good and evil and why God made this command. But for our purposes, know this. These trees existed. Adam could eat of everything in the garden except for one tree, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And that obedience to that command, because this is the only command. This is the one instruction that God provides Adam in the garden. Don't eat of this tree. And as long as Adam obeys God in that way, he is in perfect relationship with God. Adam found delight in obedience. And God found delight in Adam because of his obedience. Now picture this. Adam working the land, living in the land, while in perfect relationship to his God. Because God had given him one 
instruction. Don't eat of that tree. And as long as Adam and Eve, who we'll introduce in a moment, did not eat of that tree, the first people were in perfect relationship with God because they were fully obedient to him. God delighted in them, and they delighted in God through obedience. Next, Adam and Eve had perfect relationship with one another in their Lord-ordained marriage. Now listen to verses 18 through 25. I want to read it all again. And this tells us of the creating work uh, from Adam to Eve and then also God instituting marriage. It says, then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heaven and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave name, gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heaven, to the every beast of the field for, but for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So just stop there. There's this parade, right? All the animals come uh, through it b- before Adam, and, uh, and Adam names them and, and understands by naming them. Again, this, as we saw God naming things in Genesis 1, by naming them, uh, Adam is, is practicing dominion care, but dominion over those animals. But none of them were a suitable helper. So the Lord God caused the sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This story tells us that man is created for relationship. And we've already seen some of these relationships, the relationship that man has with his work and with his creation and even with his creator, with his God. But there was still something missing. There there was something else to, to be done that man needed companionship. And so God creates from man woman. And Adam looks at his wife Eve and says this, and this is in poetic form in verse 23, this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. There is deep intimacy in these words. When he says bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh and the very name that he calls her when he calls her woman, he he is ascribing an intimate relationship to this new creature beside him. There is deep intimacy in this text that man and woman created as compliments to one another. Man and woman created to be in relationship with one another. And so then God defines that relationship in verses 24 and 25 as he ordains marriage. And we see not only a deep intimacy between man and woman, but a deep commitment between them. You'll notice that he says, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. The King James words for this that is so often used in wedding ceremonies still today is leave and cleave. That I'm going to walk away from that which I know and hold fast above all others. The way that I say it when I perform weddings in vows, forsaking all others, I choose you. 
above every other living creature on this planet. I choose you. I leave all of it behind. I walk away from everything else. And for for God to give this instruction in the ordination of marriage, this is what he is saying. A man shall leave his father and mother is to say that a man will turn his back on everything else to cleave to his wife. And that's not an exclusion of just the man is doing that. It's a picture of both parties. So the woman, too, will leave her father and mother and cling only to her husband. That there is deep-seated commitment within the intimate relationship. And, as we've seen with everything else, there is great delight. That's, that's what Adam naming woman, woman, shows us. In the original language, it shows us this great delight. Adam looks at, at woman and he's like, man, that's bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. But there's some differences here and I like them. And I'm going to, I would sacrifice all of this for her. She would sacrifice all of it for him. There's this great commitment. Not greater than the commitment Adam has to God, even though we will see that they will sacrifice because of their relationship with one another. They will sacrifice that right relationship with God, but they didn't have to. It wasn't necessary. You don't have to choose God or your spouse. It's forsaking all earthly things, leaving it all behind. Monogamous, heterosexual marriage. Let me repeat that. Monogamous, Heterosexual marriage, we say it like this, marriage between one man and one woman for life in our core values, is the historic and biblical norm for marriage. It is the deepest essence of humanity's relationships. It is the first institution created by God. God establishes three institutions within the scriptures. Marriage, government, congregation, church. Three institutions established by God. The first is marriage. Therefore, it cannot be redefined by modern society because God has said what is true. And because God has said it is true and that it exists in this way, then marriage will eternally exist in this way because God is the one who has defined it as such. Man and woman in the garden in perfect relationship with their responsibilities, with their surroundings, with their God and with one another. And that leads us to that last verse. And the man and the wife were both naked and were not ashamed. There was no fear. There was, there was no guilt. There was freedom in the delight in God's paradise. So what? The Lord's garden reflects a perfect creation which is now being restored through Christ and which we work to restore through obedience to him. Genesis 2, this is why I began by saying what I did about modern evangelical Christianity, tracing the story of redemption back to Genesis 3 and stopping there. And when we stop there, we miss something. And here's what we miss. We miss what the first people fell from. And by missing what they fall from, we miss what we are being restored to. So Genesis 2 gives us this perfect creation of delight, of paradise, of both vertical and horizontal relationships being exactly as God intended them to be. And every story that builds from here 
just shows us what we lost when we called this in our minds. When we get to Genesis 3 and we get to Genesis 4 and so forth and so on, and we read all of the rest of the Old Testament, here's, here's what we're constantly reminded of. Man, we lost something incredible. To exalt Genesis 2 is to recognize just how far man fell in Genesis 3. But God did not leave us in that fall. Genesis 2 is now being restored through Christ. Actively restored through the people of God through obedience to him. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul gives us a truth about those who are in Christ. Here's what he says. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Genesis 2 gives us a detailed account of new creation. Man and woman formed out of dust and a rib in right relationship with one another and with creation and with God. And we will see in the next two weeks that the fall is great, devastating to all of those relationships. But Jesus provides a way for us to be restored to that. Jesus, through his work on the cross, makes it so that restoration to Genesis 2 can become our aim. And not just an eternity future. It can become our aim now. The aim of every Christian now should be to live in Genesis 2. The aim of every Christian should be to work to improve the creation around us. To obey God in order to restore the paradise of delight. Piece by piece, little by little. We should desire the paradise of God. We should seek through our influence and our obedience to God to see it restored. Now, here's what we need to understand. It will never fully happen by our power. None of this is by our power anyway. There's only so much a preacher can say during a sermon. So I want you to apply doctrinal truth to what I'm saying here. We're obedient because God makes us able to be obedient. And he gives us his righteousness and causes obedience then to flow through us. But as we practice obedience to what God has told us to be true, just as Adam practiced obedience in Genesis 2 to what God had told him to be true, we piece by piece and slowly begin to see the paradise of God form around us. Where we are more able then as new creations to delight in God's creation and to delight in our relationships and to delight in our connection with God. Now, it is also a future reality that one day creation, as we saw when we looked at the creation was very good, and we went all the way to Revelation 21, we looked at the end, we said God is going to eventually make all of this new, and he will. But it is actively being restored through Christ. So we exalt Genesis 2, so we are reminded of what God is restoring us to. And we look around us and we say, we're not there yet. So we do the hard work of obedience in our lives, obeying God. So that we can see more of the paradise of delight become true in our lives and in our church and in our homes. And even in our community. That Christians have this great challenge to influence the society in which they live for the good. Not to hunker down, build walls around us and, and say, well, we're going we're gonna to influence these people and those people are on their own. No, 
we are working to see paradise restored, longing for the day that God will fully make all things new. So the question to you is, are you a new creation in Christ today? If you're not, come to faith in Jesus, believing that he died in your place, paying the penalty for your sin, making you able then to do this. If you are, if you are in Christ, then we ask this question, have I grown comfortable in the fall over the paradise of delight? Or am I actively seeking through my obedience and God's work through me and in our world to see things restored to that which was, as God said, very good? Let's pray together. Oh God, what a picture. What a picture. A paradise where you delight in your creation and your creation delights in its creator. I'm reminded of the words of Christ on the cross to the thief on his side who professes faith and Jesus turns and says, today you will be with me in paradise. We know God. By faith, we know what awaits us. But by obedience, we know our responsibility today to live as new creations, created new in Christ, working in our lives and our families and our church and our community to restore that which you called good. Help us to do so, we pray. For the person who's never professed faith in Jesus, would they do that now? Would they believe in their hearts be made new? From stone to flesh, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. If you're watching us online and you'd like to tell us what God's doing in your life, there's a website on your screen right now. You could go to that website and um, fill out a form. One of our pastors will follow up with you. For those in the room, would you stop by the Connect 10? If God moved in your heart, if you say, I want to put my faith in Jesus or I want to know more, I have a question, I'll be at the the 10 outside. I'd love to talk with you. However God would lead you to, to respond now in your heart in commitment to him, would you do that as we stand together and sing?